It was a typical Friday afternoon that became one that will live long in the memory of Aotearoa New Zealand, most specifically for the Muslim community in Christchurch. On March 15, 2019, as the news broke of the unfolding terror at the Al Noor Mosque and Linwood Islamic Centre, I was in my Hamilton home office having a normal Friday, quietly going about preparing my church service for Sunday morning and my radio show for Sunday night. Within minutes of hearing the news, I'd booked a flight to Christchurch. I'm a media chaplain, a chaplain to journalists who often have to deal with awful news for a living, and I knew this was going to be one of those occasions, but much worse than anything most of them would have experienced before. I made my way from Hamilton to Christchurch, and within hours of landing found myself at the cordon by the mosque, standing and listening to members of our media who were trying to faithfully report on what had happened, interpret the carnage, connect with the victims, and make sense of the awful tragedy unfolding before them. Over the following days, I sat with journalists who had arrived before the armed defenders squad. I shared coffee with some who had begun telling the story while the shooter was still at large. It was clear that the Christchurch journalists in particular had been hit hard by what had happened. What I found in my work with journalists was a group of empathetic, caring people dedicated to honouring the victims and telling this important story well. In this series of podcasts, I'll be chatting with Christchurch journalists about their experiences being on the front lines of a historical day. I'm Frank Ritchie, media chaplain, minister and broadcaster. Welcome to episode one of Friday Prayers. We begin with Thomas Mead. At the time of the attack, Thomas was a Christchurch journalist for News Hub. In his career, Thomas has spent time as an online reporter for MediaWorks. From there, he took up a role as a prime news reporter and then as a reporter for News Hub until after the attack last year. He's now a reporter for TVNZ. So Thomas, thanks for, thanks for taking some time. Thanks for having me. Now, thinking through your life getting into journalism first, how did that happen? Well, I always wanted to be an author when I was an a, author. Yeah, when I was a kid, <laughs> I wanted to write fantasy novels oh, uh, right when mate. I started. But as I grew up, I realised that that wasn't really attainable. So I thought I'd do what an adult should, and went for the more um, sensible route, uh, and went through the University of Canterbury there and started at TB3. Uh, and now on to TVNZ. It's been a very exciting profession so far. <laughs> Any desire to write a fantasy novel at some point? Oh, you've got to have a retirement plan, don't you? So <laughs> I'll just, I've just got a book of ideas and I'll keep them going for the next <laughs> few decades. I'd ask you to spill the ideas, but some of them might get stolen. Yeah, that's right. No, <laughs> you can't patent those. <laughs> so favorite favorite fantasy novels? I, I re- uh, And I ask because I love fantasy. I read a lot of fantasy, so you've got to tell me what your favourites are. And this is a really boring answer. It's got to be Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? Oh, that totally. My, my first love and will always be <laughs> a strong fire in my heart. <laughs> I like it. Have you have you done the whole Game of Thrones thing? I read a few of the books, yeah. But in the end, they're just such big times that, you know, I, I struggle to read now that I've, I prefer, I prefer. I guess it goes with what I do, but I prefer watching telly now. <laughs> I can't handle the long reads. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you news junkie when you watch TV or do you like to get away from it? Yeah, I am. Um, not as much as I used to be. I used to just obsessively read everything. But now if I need a hit, I've, I've cultivated enough of a group on Twitter that I can just open my phone and hook straight into that. So, But I'm trying more recently to disconnect from the news when I get home so I don't burn out with yeah, good too, man. Many, too many tabs open in the browser, you know. <laughs> it's good because it comes from everywhere nowadays, eh? 
Once upon a time, you'd I think you'd open the paper in the morning, you'd read your news there, and then you'd sit down for the six o'clock news at the end of the day, and that would be about it. Whereas now, it's just coming from everywhere. There is, I, I still love that feeling of being the first one to know something, though. Yeah. Even even if you get it from Twitter and you and you break it to the rest of the newsroom, stand up and deliver that. Yeah. It, it's such a hit. It's such a rush. There's a couple of times where I've seen something break, and I've tried. I've tried to be the first on Twitter, and then I've I've seen some of my uh, journalist uh, friends so much faster. They've beaten me by like twenty seconds, and I feel I feel robbed. It's amazing how onto it you guys are. Yeah, it's a bit of a race sometimes, depending <laughs> on the subjects. <laughs> now, are you born bred Christchurch? Yeah, yeah, I'm quite boring in that front. The apple hasn't fallen far from the tree, so I grew up in. Um Different parts in North Canterbury, and then moved into town to go to university. And I've stuck around ever since. Mm. When you when you got into journalism, did you ever imagine something like March fifteen? No, uh, I didn't. I mean, even even I mean, I've done a lot of, I, I guess you would say, big disaster stories. Um, you know, there's been several here when you think, you know, the earthquakes, mm. I did the Kaikoura earthquake, the Port Hills fires, the Nelson wildfires. But even experiencing that, this was another level beyond. Mm. That just wasn't on the radar for me, even, and we can get into this throughout the discussion, I suppose, but even on the day, you know, it took a long time for me to realize that this is happening. This is the, this is what we've seen overseas is happening right here. Mm. How did the, how did the day start for you? Was it was because uh, it would have been just a normal day like like any other? What did that look like? Yeah, well, there's a there's a common um, sort of I guess you call it a joke in in journalism that um, the big stories always break on Friday afternoon. Um, so <laughs> true to form, the it, end of the news cycle. Yeah, there they come. I was actually um, playing. I was actually playing netball. Uh, oh, really? And the news hub indoors. Um, no, we have a, we had an outdoor court then. News okay. Hub had a, a team. We took it very seriously, uh, so we were out sort of on afternoon tea break, uh, shooting a few hoops, as it were, and then the message came through from the newsroom that there had been some kind of shooting, and we didn't know what it was, and we just basically rolled out. And the News Hub office on Lincoln Road in Christchurch is the closest newsroom to the the mosque, Al Noor okay. Mosque on Dean's Ave. It's about a kilometre as the crow flies. So we rolled out straight away. And even then, I didn't really realize what was happening. You often get reports of things that are quite serious that aren't actually true. The, mm. the bad reports, I remember other times we've heard reports of, you know, a bus going off the edge of a cliff on the West Coast and we're about to run to the helicopter. Oh, it turns out that's not actually happening. So on the way, I went with a, a senior camera operator, very experienced, and I'm very thankful for that, named Mike Johnson. Um, and even on the way, I was sort of making jokes saying, oh, you know, this is uh, going to be a car backfiring or something. And it wasn't until we got to, and people from Christchurch will know this scene very well, Morehouse Ave, one of the biggest roads in Christchurch, turning into Dean's Ave where the mosque, mosque is, that I realized, hang on, there's something serious happening here. And it's because the ambulances were just going one after the other, one after the other. And there was this very strange moment mm. where we were stuck in traffic unable to move with all of these ambulances flying past. So we pulled up on the scene. I think, I'm not sure because it's all a blur that I was the, the first journalist there, me and Mike were. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned I've been around quite a few serious scenes uh, before. And the first moment that I realized that something really serious was happening was 
by watching the police officers, and I can still see mm. this as very vivid, like a painting in my mind. When we got there, there were two uh, police officers taking cover behind a civilian vehicle, uh, a Nissan Toronto, um, pointing their AR-15s down towards uh, the mosque. And we had to make this decision then, which I've never had to make before and hopefully never will again, where we had to choose between the story and our safety because mm. not not knowing what was happening, normally police are only able to control the road so they can only coordinate off there. But this happened right off Hagley Park. So we had the opportunity to walk Get around them. up the center of yep. the park. And so we kind of niggled our way up watching and people are running through the park, you know, towards them and the cops are going, move, move, move. And then I just remember them turning around and seeing us and using a few short four-letter words that you don't normally hear from police officers. Um, and we kind of had to go, look, we don't know what's happening, but we're going to pull back here. And I'll be forever grateful that we did make that decision. Yeah. So, yeah, we're gathering ourselves. We're trying to figure out what's happening. It's absolute chaos. People are running in on the phone. You know, more more police officers coming through, running through the court in AOS. Uh, and that's when the pressure really started ramping up. And there was um, producers on the phone from Auckland saying, we're going to have to break into programming. This is a major uh, shooting. At that time, I think we, we only thought, you know, eight or nine people had died. Um, so another camera operator came down with some live equipment, Bob Grieve, and we started going live. Um, and we were there for... I was at that point for maybe three hours. It, it, it was such a blur. It, it, it's one of the hardest tests you can face as a, as a broadcast journalist because you have no information and you have to be really careful not to speculate mm. at that early stage. And I didn't realize it, but at that time our feed was starting to broadcast around the world because you know the BBC, the New York Times, whoever, they don't have any journalists in Christchurch, New Zealand. They probably don't even know where it is. Mm. So... Suddenly, I was getting my phone just started to explode. My my cell phone number was on my Twitter profile, and numbers from you know, Turkey, Ireland, all over wow. the world. My phone was just lighting up, tens and tens of calls, um, and people would text me saying, "I've just seen you on the BBC World. I've just seen you on on CBS. I've just seen you on ABC, Al Jazeera." Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's going on? You know, it went from shooting netball hoops to suddenly being on yeah. literally hundreds of television stations all over the world. And that was when, you know, normally in these kinds of situations, you've got to be really careful to walk the line between delivering the information that's true and accurate to inform the public about what's going on and not traumatizing the people who are actually caught up in it. Mm. And normally that line's really clear because people who have gone through traumatic episodes in New Zealand, Kiwis, don't want to talk to the media, particularly the television media, because you know it's an invasion of their privacy at a very traumatic time. But right from the start, there was a real difference with the Muslim community mm. there, which really sticks with me to this day. And they they wanted to talk and they were open to it. And so you know, not knowing what was going on, I started doing these live interviews on air with people who had just come out of the mosque with blood on their clothes, asking them and learning at the same time as everyone else watching back at home what had happened, and they revealed that 
you know, the mosque had been full of people and that they thought 40 or 50 people had died. Mm. Um, I remember doing an interview with uh, Farid Ahmed, who many will remember from the coverage. He's the man in a wheelchair who lost his wife, Hosna. Um, and he was just so calm, unbelievably calm, having just lived through a terror attack and just clearly articulated exactly what had happened so everyone could understand. And then I sort of gave him an opportunity to, to wrap it up, and he continued. So he you know, graciously allowed the interview to go for some seven, eight minutes. And then I remember touching base with a just a, a Kiwi woman who was on her way to lunch, and she was so adorable. Her name was Jill Keats. Um, she was on her way to lunch with a family member, I think her sister, and just saw someone on the street and did what she could to get out and compress the wound. And, yeah, it was just surreal. Um, I, I, we ended up hugging uh, live on air. You know, we just felt like we were both in that moment together. Um, and then, yeah, I, I don't know um, how much we should discuss right now, but, you know, the coverage has gone on. Mm. We were working nonstop uh, for a very long time mm. after that. Yeah. One of the things you were, I remember you being praised for, I think it was, I was listening to something on RNZ, it might have been Media Watch or something like that, and they were, they were praising you specifically for your empathy uh, in the situation. Listening to you tell your story just then, there's a lot of stuff to weigh up in any given moment. The decisions that have to be made. Do we run in to get the story? Do we uh, take? Do we look out for our safety here? There's so many things you were processing in every moment of that, and that's come up as you've, as you've told your story. That's a lot of stuff to weigh. It would be easy just to get into that cold space where you just make the decisions, you get the story, and you, you keep going. But s- somehow you manage to do your job and be human in the middle of it as well. How? I, I think um, part of it comes from the experience of of going through disaster situations before. I, I know that none of them compare to this, but after a while you start to realize, you know, you can see sort of on people's faces sometimes, it's not the be-all and end-all, but you can see whether someone is open to talking to you mm. by their body language sometimes. Um, and it's just about finding, explaining to them clearly what is going to happen and asking them for their permission. But in terms of finding a way to be empathetic, I think, I don't know, it, it's, it, it's a weird thing to say because I didn't go through it, but being there from that really early stage you kind of felt like you, I kind of felt like I understood Mm. what was happening and almost felt like, you know, I wasn't part of it, but like I was caught up in it. Mm. And even in those interviews, it, it almost, you know, it didn't really feel like I was being a journalist, doing a public service broadcasting to the world or whatever. More than any other story I've done, it, it just felt like I was there with them. Mm. If that makes sense. No, it makes, it makes sense. And, And I'm getting that, I flew in the following morning, the Saturday. Uh, saw you quickly, but you were in the middle of a whole bunch of stuff, so I couldn't I couldn't get you to stop. But um, 
there was a difference and there's been a difference in the discussions afterwards between the Christchurch journalists, the international journalists that I spoke to, and even other New Zealand journalists who, who flew in. Uh, so I think there's an element where the Christchurch journalists in particular carried something different into that whole that whole mix. There's almost a greater, there seems to be a greater empathy, a greater sense of the emotion of the occasion from the Christchurch journalists because you're reporting on your home. And the thing I think is different with regional journalists as well is those relationships are really, really important. Mm. And the people that I met on the day, uh, the people that I'm still doing stories on and with, I actually did a story on Farid Ahmed uh, just this week on a book that he's released. So, you know, you really have to protect the people that you're working with in a way that not so much the other national journalists, but international journalists mm. don't need because they come in and out. They need their they need their piece. Uh, they need, you know, as much as they can get, and then they're gone. And mm. if they burn relationships in the meantime, for some of them, not all of them, so be it from mm. their perspective. Whereas we have to live with the consequences of the way that we behave for months afterwards. Um, so you really. You know, you do that anyway, but you really work on protecting those people where you can and protecting your relationship with them. Yeah, and not not just because necessarily there's an ongoing story there, but these are people you could bump into into the su- in the supermarket. Their friends are people that you might bump into. You might, if if you end up with a family or if you've got a family, your children might end up in the same school. You know, there, there's a there's an intimacy there that's not there for internationals flying in. You mentioned uh, the calmness from the people that you encountered, and you're not the only one to to mention that. Where do you think that came from? I still don't really know, you know, and it's something, you know, I've interviewed people from um, St. John and from the ambulance, uh, from St. John from the hospital as well, and they said exactly the same thing. When they came into the emergency department, Mm. they were calm and waiting their turn, essentially, despite... um, did horrific injuries. And it's um, not just shock, eh? Like it's not a shock kind of calm that just almost sends you into that matrix zone where everything slows down. It's a, there's a different type of calmness we're talking about here, isn't it? Yeah. They they seemed incredibly open as well. They 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 The people that I spoke to wanted their story told and understood the good that can come from you know, responding as they did with not only calmness, but, you know, love and in Farid's case and many others' Mm. uh, forgiveness. Um, Yeah, I still don't really understand how they were able to do that. I certainly, if I'd been in their Mm. uh, position, would not have reacted calmly. Um, Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I think I would have lost the plot as well. I like to think that I wouldn't with the foundation in life that I have, but I I think I would have, I think I'd lose lose the plot. When you finish the when you finish the day that day, it's been interesting processing with a number of journalists what the end of the day and the end of the shift look like. How do you decide that you're done for the day? Because I mean, you turn up at a factory job, for instance, or the jobs that most of us have. You've got a time where the day finishes and you clock out. That's not how this situation could work. What is, what does it look like? You know, normally when you're working on a really big breaking story, some of those I've mentioned in the past, um, you don't really clock off. You just work and sleep. Uh, you know, Nelson, Wild Buzz, whatever. I, you know, 
we worked 18, 20 hour days, whatever, because you you need to do that to get the job done and the really big ones. And then sometimes there's a slow news day and you get a, mm. a day to relax. Uh, but this story, I don't know, it, it basically took over my life for many weeks and months afterwards because it wasn't just that initial coverage. Obviously, we were working really long hours mm. to cover it to the best of our abilities. There was a real sense that this was, you know, possibly the most important story we would ever cover uh, and that this was the time to sort of cash all your checks in, you know, everything you've learned. This is the time. This is the moment that you've trained for and that you can really make a difference. So we were just working as hard as we could. And also because of what the victims had been through, you know, nothing that I experienced or any of us experienced will ever compare to the enormous hardship that they'd been through. So there was almost a feeling of doing it right for them mm. more than other stories I've experienced, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Because you're also a Christchurch resident and it is your home, I would imagine has there been for you the moving in and out of work, telling the story, doing the job, to processing what this means as as someone whose home has changed now? Uh, I mean, all of us would have said that never happened in Christchurch. It's going to happen anywhere in New Zealand, which nobody has ever, nobody ever imagined. It would have been Auckland. So you've had to also process this is my home. What? How's that transition played out? Or is uh, I would imagine the lines between that are really blurry. Yeah, the lines between like between uh, work and private life kind of blurred for a bit there because it was basically all I thought about for a really long time, but. Yeah, I, th I think it is important to remember that while it did happen in Christchurch, it really only happened to that community. And I think it, it is important to remember that we, the people of Christchurch weren't targeted in that mm. same way. Um, and while I guess we can grieve that, you know, people have said, you know, our innocence as a, as a, as a group has been, as, a, as Kiwis has been shattered, it really was... Um, targeted at a specific group of people mm. and I try to um, I don't know if I'm making sense here but no you're making perfect sense yeah not not to not to conflate the two there yeah, yeah. and it, I think I think that's a really important point and it's one a number of journalists have made I think I think it's significant because it, it's it's relatively easy to make yourself a victim when you're not the victim of a story like this. I remember mm, visiting yes. the mosque in Christchurch because I couldn't fly down on the Friday night. Oh, sorry, in Hamilton. Because I couldn't fly down on the Friday night, the planes got grounded. I'd been on my way to the airport, found out it was grounded, so turned around and went straight to the mosque. Standing outside the mosque, all the flowers are being laid. Car drives past and just yells out insults. And it was directed not at me. It was directed at the people who worship at at the mosque. Uh, there's no sense that I was a victim in that moment. So that's a really good thing to keep reminding people that there's a specific community here that was ripped apart and our attention needs to be on them. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd agree with that entirely. Um, you know, and, and, and our sense of safety has, has been shattered and people have talked about that. It has affected people more widely, but there are a specific group of victims um, that, yeah, we should keep the focus on. Mm. What, have the, what does it look like cultivating those relationships over time, keeping those relationships going? I mean, we are a year on now, and I know that some of them have stopped telling their stories, understandably, um, but how has it been keeping those relationships going? 
they're so gracious, you know. They, they, you would, they've, many of them have been through, many of them, I think, have been diagnosed with PTSD or, or different, different uh, things from the trauma that they faced, but they're still open to talking about it. And it, it feels like there was a joint decision by many in the Muslim community to use this as an opportunity to spread, you know, love and peace and forgiveness and to show what the Muslim faith really is about mm. from their perspective. Um, because they have received a lot of uh, negative coverage for things that have happened around the world. Um, and that seems to be a, a big driving factor in reminding people that they are about love and, and peace and that kind of thing. So they've been open uh, to continue talking to to um, to me and to others, and it, it's been incredible to watch their recovery, because they still to this day, you know, one of one of my a man I did a story on uh, in hospital shortly after the the attack, you know, is going back to hospital um, tomorrow for a major surgery that will um, take, you know months to recover from. So they're still definitely working through it, but still amazingly open to talking about mm. their experiences. It's amazing, eh? It's amazing that a community could be that open when it's totally understandable to go into lockdown, shut everything out, put the bars up, and just lock the doors, essentially, and get in, in self-protection mode. What's it been like for you have doing other stories that just don't have that same same adrenaline pump? I would imagine you've done some stories since then that are just kind of your more run-of-the-mill everyday stories. How's that been? It, it, it was hard initially. Mm. It, it felt like it felt like we'd just done the biggest story of our lives and that nothing else could ever compare initially. Uh, it, it was particularly difficult, and I didn't expect this. And I've, you know, talked to some people since, and they've explained this to me to go from something where people had been through so much trauma and their pain was so intense to someone who's you know complaining about something lesser, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I and I I felt I felt myself afterwards. I recognize it now, but I didn't initially in, in, in the months afterwards, you know, sort of becoming a little bit more callous inside. Yeah. I didn't show it externally because you're still a professional, but inside you're thinking, you see thoughts, you know, is that really a problem? It, it, yeah. You know, it, come on, stop whinging. And, you know, and John Campbell's talked about this and I, I agree with him entirely. The moment you stop being empathetic as a journalist is the day you need to quit yeah. because empathy is so key and so important to what we do because the things... The stories that we're putting out can seriously affect people's lives and mm. mistakes that journalists have made overseas and domestically have ruined people's lives. And we have to remember that, you know, although it's just a day in the life for us, this can live on for the people we're talking to. Mm. Um, so yeah, I remember after one specific interview, I remember coming up thinking, you know, you externally were really nice there, but but you know, you're a bit callous here, mate. You need, <laughs> and, I went, and I went and had a chat to someone about it, actually, um, and said, why Why is this happening? Why am I feeling like this? And, and you know, she explained to me that it's a, nat a natural part of being exposed to so much trauma. It happens to people in the, you know, in the ambulance service hospitals, yep. that kind of thing. It's self-preservation. 
it is that's exactly what she said, mm. uh, and and it will pass, and it has. Mm. Um, but it was something I didn't expect or understand at the time. Yeah, it's part of if you. Then naturally you would come out of it and there's a cycle for, for that to happen. And when you get stuck in it, that becomes post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, when you, and part of that is, is that, that constant need for self-preservation. So for some people that lands in panic attacks, it, it exhibits itself in various ways. And it's understandable that for journalists, when you're encountering stuff over and over and over again, that's where the kind of hardened journalist uh, stereotype comes from. It's people who have, who have gone through that over and over and over, never processed it, never dealt with it, and it, the, it's how they protect themselves. Uh, so well done talking to someone, well done uh, processing that, but acknowledging it in yourself as well. It would have been very easy just to drink your black coffee and move on to the next story. Yeah, well, I was having a few sort of uh, physical effects as well mm. that, that sort of accelerated that process for me because for some reason – you know, in the, in the months afterwards, uh, we went back to normal sort of duties, as it were. And then every time we returned to a mosque story, I would struggle to sleep and, you know, obsessive thoughts, not be able to get it out of my mind. Mm. And, yeah, I was like, what's going on? I've never had this before. Uh, so it was good to talk it through, understand it, understand why, and then be able to tackle it. Uh, and that proved very effective. Yeah. yeah. It's because you're selling it. You're seeing and dealing with stuff that no human is, is designed or built to to see or or deal with. Um, so, because of that, I want to say thank you uh, to you. And the whole reason we're doing this is because I value journalists. I value what you do. Um, the whole reason that I knew something was going on was because there were people who threw themselves onto the front line and were reporting and telling telling that story. Um, hearing from multiple journalists the hugging that was going on with victims, the, the wanting to tell stories. Uh, in an age of cynicism towards journalists and media, uh, I think this has been a great exploration for people to see the, see the human. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for throwing yourself into it. Thank you for not letting it cause you to be callous so that as you continue to tell stories, that empathy uh, remains there. As a nation, we, we are... I don't think it's an overstatement. We need people like you because uh, information is important. Well, thank you. Uh, very nice of you to say that. But the real thanks should go to those in the Muslim community and those incredible yeah. rescuers who helped them out because at the end of the day, nothing that I've experienced or any of us have experienced will ever compare to the kind of trauma that they've gone through and then the kind of grace um, and you know love that they displayed in response to that. So, um, yeah, I appreciate it, but... It's, it's then we should really thank. Yeah, may we all in some way embody a little bit of what they've shown as well. Hopefully we all learn something from it. Thanks, yeah, Thomas. I certainly have. Thank you. That was Thomas Mead. A big thanks to the team at NZME Christchurch for providing us with studio space to be able to record that conversation. In the next episode, I'll be chatting with Blair Ensor, an investigative journalist for Stuff. <laughs>